You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on July 23rd, 2021. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for Kids and Others. Uh, I was off uh, a little bit in previous weeks because we were doing our annual collection of summer programs, our summer school and summer camp for high school students. And um, the result of that is we got more than 100 very interesting original projects got done. Um, It's always my time of year for taking things that I've wondered about all year and uh, actually seeing if they can move forward with uh, other people working on them. And uh, it was very satisfying this year. All right, we have a bunch of questions um, saved up here. Gosh, where to start? Uh, There was a question here about neuroscience from Cambridge. Is programming essential for the next breakthrough in neuroscience, both theoretical and practical, uh, how have some of the things I've built, how might they contribute to that? Well, let's talk about what neuroscience is, what a breakthrough would consist of, and try and take it from there. So neuroscience is kind of about how brains work. And it's sort of, it's only been a hundred or so years that we've known that brains have neurons in them. We have whatever it is around um, 100 billion neurons in our brains. Each neuron, each nerve cell is this uh, uh, thing that's, that's, I don't know how long, maybe a few millimeters long and often maybe even longer than that. Um, it's, it's like a tiny little piece of wire that has sort of electrical that um, uh, can produce an electrical signal. And it has these um, uh, um, dendrites at one end, this whole kind of tree of, of different um, little little branches of, of nerve cell that kind of collect, in a sense, the electrical signals. And then when they've collected enough electrical signals, the nerve cell will fire and it will produce an electrical signal that it will then distribute to other nerve cells through its so-called axons. And this is kind of the, the picture of sort of what brains are made of is this very complicated tangle of neurons, nerve cells, and that uh, where the nerve cells are ultimately getting uh, glucose, they're getting, they're, they're getting sort of uh, fuel to be able to act like little tiny battery-like things where when they get signals coming in, they can produce an electrical pulse that goes out. And they're doing that, oh, it depends on exactly what's happening in that part of the brain, but they might do that a thousand times a second, every millisecond or so. And most often what they do is they produce these so-called spike trains where a particular nerve cell is like going firing, 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 then it's kind of quiescent for a while, doesn't do anything for a while, then it's like firing, firing, firing again. And uh, one can now, for for probably, what is it, um, 40, 50 years now, it's been possible to record from single cells um, in brains, not human brains, because you don't want to do that typically. Um, it's, uh, uh, for example, the squid has a giant axon, a very big um, piece of its, its um, nerve cells. And so it's particularly easy to record from that. Uh, cats, mice, 
um, these kinds of things, occasionally monkeys, um, it's possible to record from single cells in their brains and to try and get a sense of what's going on. And, and what you get from that single cell recording is mostly just a lot of, well, it didn't do anything, and then suddenly it's very active and, and so on. Okay, a big breakthrough that was made, I guess, in the 1960s was the realization that there were sort of correlations between what the brain is experiencing and what you can actually measure in the electrical activity in the brain. So it had been known for much longer than that, that there's this EEG, this overall kind of pattern of electrical activity in the brain that's around 10 times a second or something, 10 cycles a second, roughly. There are these overall kind of waves of activity in the brain. And that's what, you know, when you put electrodes on your, on your head, that's what you're measuring is the EEG, um, this electroencephalogram, this kind of overall electrical activity in the brain. And for example, when you're awake, there's one pattern of electrical activity. If you go to sleep, a different pattern of electrical activity starts up and in different phases of sleep, you see different kinds of patterns and so on. And you know, if you're unfortunate enough to have, for example, an epileptic seizure, that shows up. It's often very hard to, to tell exactly what's going on, but it shows up as this kind of large scale electrical activity that affects large pieces of the brain. And it's not, it's kind of like, uh, like a computer where instead of all the individual transistors and so on, they're all doing the things that are processing information. It's like there's a giant electrical wave that goes through the computer, which is not very useful for information processing. And in the case of, of humans, uh, can cause seizures and so on. So the, and you know, typical, there are different kinds of seizures, but, but sort of a typical thing is sort of, you know, lots of muscles just bouncing around randomly, so to speak, because those parts of the brain that are, are being electrically stimulated sort of at random in some sense. And I should explain that, that you know, the brain is this big bundle of 100 billion nerve cells, but you know, we have nerves that come out of the brain through the spinal cord and so on that uh, feed into all the muscles and sensors and so on throughout our bodies. And there are typically pretty long nerves that go down our arms and so on. And they're, they're sort of places where those nerves have kind of repeater stations where the signal propagates down one nerve, one long nerve, and then it'll get to the next sort of the junction box and then it'll propagate down the next nerve and so on. And it takes about a 10th of a second to, uh, I think that's that right. Well, I mean, the, the overall reaction time, if you like see a light and you have to press a button, is around one third of a second, typically. Um, and some fraction of that time is spent actually sending the nerve signal down, down your arm to, to your finger. And then what will happen is you, there's an electrical signal and the nerve that connects to the muscle in your finger. And the, the, that electrical signal, when a, when a muscle at the neuromuscular junction, when, when the nerve kind of has an electrical delivers uh, sort of a little electric shock to the muscle, um, that little electric shock causes the muscle to contract. Um, and uh, of course, when you get a big electric shock, the one of the bad things that happens is it causes all your muscles there to contract, you know, very violently. And that's, that's a bad thing. But um, the, uh, so, you know, what we kind of already kind of know the brain is doing is it's causing muscles to move and things like that. And it's receiving signals from all of our sort of sensors, all the touch sensors, the pain sensors, heat sensors, all those kinds of things that uh, cover our, our bodies, um, both in some cases externally and internally. 
Um, but we, we've kind of known for a long time that, you know, in the end, when we're going to move our finger, there's an electrical signal that's generated in our brains that eventually uh, causes the muscle in our fingers to move. Okay, the thing that was discovered, I guess, in the 1960s was sort of the other way around. When, when signals come into the brain, what actually, uh, uh, you know, how are, they, how are they kind of decoded in the brain? And so the big thing that was discovered at first is about vision. And it's like when you show something in the visual, in one's visual field, what actually happens in one's brain? So the first thing that happens is light falls on the retina at the back of our eyes. And in the retina, when a photon of light uh, kind of um, goes into one of these photoreceptor cells at the back of our eye, it causes an electrical signal to be generated in that cell. That electrical signal is then transferred to the optic nerve and the optic nerve then sends that data about that piece of light into our brains. What does it do? Well, in a somewhat piece of, of a slightly bizarre design, uh, the, the optic nerves from our eyes actually cross over in the center of our heads and go to the optic, the, the primary visual cortex, which is at the back of the brain. Sort of seems like bad design because it seems like it would make more sense to have the visual cortex at the front uh, near the eyes. So you don't have to have this sort of trunk line going through the brain and this slightly bizarre crossover of right eye connects to the left part of the, um, uh, well, primarily to the left part of the visual, uh, primary visual cortex. So the, um, actually it's more complicated than that. It, it connects eventually to both sides, but it, um, uh, the, the, the sort of this initial crossover in, in, of the optic nerves inside the brain at a thing called the lateral geniculate nucleus, which is just one of these little features inside the brain. Well, in any case, the, um, uh, let's see, the, the, so the thing that was observed is the following. So you show some pattern in, in the eyes, and the question is what kind of electrical signal does that produce in the visual cortex? Well, so in, in cats and monkeys, I think, um, these things were, were explicitly measured. And the, the sort of the big thing that was found is that there were certain cells that when you show the cat vertical stripes, those cells will be like firing, firing, firing all the time. When you show the cat horizontal stripes, those cells will be firing, firing, firing all the time. And there are other cells that are, are sort of center surround cells where you show the the something which is like a, like a little picture of an eye, actually, where it's sort of black in the middle, white on the outside. There are cells that are really excited about that particular kind of uh, signal. And so in general, the, um, uh, what was discovered is that there are certain kinds of visual stimuli that there are particular cells in the visual cortex that respond to those particular visual stimuli. And that was sort of a, a big moment in, in neuroscience, the realization that you could really map between actual stimuli, types of stimuli, and things that happen in the brain. And there was a, a lot more complexity there. For example, the fact that we have stereo vision from two eyes, we're kind of synthesizing the, the, what we see out of our two different eyes and using that because from, you know, you look at an object with each different eye, you see a slightly different angle on that object, particularly if the object is near to you. And that's what we use part of what we use to figure out how far away an object is. And that all happens in our physical cortex as sort of the signals from the two eyes are kind of uh, combined together. And so it's a funny pattern because 
the in the end there's a sort of interdigitation this kind of fingers come together sort of fingers of 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 stimulation from the left eye and from the right eye that all sort of come together in the visual cortex and the visual cortex is what figures out somehow this kind of stereo effect that we see so the the basic picture of what's happening is uh, the, there's sort of a first layer of, of neurons in the visual cortex, which picks out certain features like vertical stripes, horizontal stripes, sort of blobs with surroundings, things like this. And then we go to, uh, and then there are subsequent layers, it seems, in the, in the brain, in the visual cortex that are dealing with sort of larger and larger scale features of pictures and are kind of dealing with um, uh, sort of analyzing the bigger picture, so to speak. Well, that, so that's sort of a part of kind of the, the low levels of, of neuroscience that was sort of a, a big realization that you could really identify those kinds of, of cells there and such like. Now, meanwhile, there's sort of the, if you say, well, what's the big question of neuroscience? It's kind of like, how does all the thinking we do actually work? And so another big tool that came online, uh, well, let's see, there was some work on it in the 1980s, but I think it really came online last 20 years or so. Uh, first, there were things called evoked potentials, where you try to measure sort of brain activity associated with a particular stimulus, and you repeat the stimulus, and you try and detect, oh, without the stimulus, you see very little, and with the stimulus, you see this thing. You try and do sort of on-off measurements to try and tease out, was there a small effect associated with that stimulus? They're more recently functional MRI imaging. So this is uh, imaging of essentially the, um, uh, well, let's see, you can image, uh, well, MRI is, is um, uh, primarily looking at hydrogen, so water, um, the activity, and now I'm a little bit confused actually about how that works, but you're, you're ultimately looking at metabolic activity, parts of the brain where there are nerve cells that are firing, and so they're using up glucose and things like that. And I'm, as I'm thinking about it right now, I'm not immediately remembering how that exactly uh, flows through from, from the, the way that the MRI imaging works. But in any case, the end result is you can kind of tell which parts of the brain are sort of being active, and you can do that kind of in real time, although you have to be inside a big MRI machine to be able to measure those things. And so there are endless experiments that people do kind of showing different kinds of uh, stimuli, different kinds of objects, saying different words, these kinds of things, and trying to see what exact piece of the brain kind of lights up in response to that particular stimulus. And one of the things that's been long a bit controversial is to what extent is it the case that there's a very definite signature that you can kind of see from that MRI, what is the person thinking? Maybe not between different people, but for a particular person, oh, there's the piece of the brain that lights up when you think of a dog, there's another piece that lights up when you think of a cat. Does that really work? You know, how solid is that kind of data? That's been one of the things that endless, endless experiments have been done on in neuroscience in the last 20 years or so. And I, I'm not sure I've, uh, to me, it seemed a little bit, still a little bit unclear just how, uh, how sharply you can understand those kinds of things. But then the other big thing, so, so uh, another big sort of thing in neuroscience has been this idea about sort of the overall architecture of the brain. 
the overall, uh, well, I should say a couple of things. The brain is complicated. It has many complicated pieces in very low and very simple organisms, organisms where the brain only has a couple of hundred neurons in it, for example, the precise configuration of those neurons is the same for every member of the species. Those, the precise configuration is determined by the growth of the organism, and you know exactly where each nerve cell is going to go. And one nerve cell will be responsible for this sort of tentacle at the front of the organism. One nerve cell will be responsible for carrying data from you know, the, the, the light detector in the organism to this. And, and it's all a very simple, it's a circuit where you can essentially trace every wire in the circuit. When it comes to us humans, the individual placement of neurons is not determined. It's, uh, uh, it's just, oh, there'll roughly be a bunch of neurons here. And then the details of how those neurons fill in is something that sort of just happens, seems kind of almost at random, although it's not quite at random, um, as we develop. And for a long time, people thought, you know, you're born with a certain set of neurons and that's all you'll ever have. And their neurons only die. And if you do crazy things, more of them will die. But um, uh, the uh, but but then um, it's uh, uh, it, it became clear oh maybe twenty years ago now that actually there was evidence that actually there were new neurons that could be uh, could be produced in in, a, in an adult brain so probably even somebody as ancient as me is actually growing new neurons um, from time to time it's not clear what will stimulate the largest number of new neurons growing and whether that's even a good idea because in a sense the neurons and the or the junctions between neurons are what hold our memories and if you just introduce a bunch of new neurons it's not clear what exactly that does in terms of what we can do or not do but clearly if you lose neurons that's that's a bad thing but in any case so the brain the details of where each neuron is placed those are not determined but the overall structure of brains is determined to some extent. There, you know, there are these overall patterns of all these different lobes and different structures in the brain and so on. And they have certain general features of what they tend to do. The right side of the brain does, does this, the left side of the brain does this, the language center, well, it's in different places in different people's brains and so on. But there's sort of a general organization of the brain into different kinds of things. And, and some parts of the brain like where the visual cortex is, that's pretty fixed, where the, the motor strip that, that is where the sort of initial signals for muscles come from, that's fairly fixed. And then some other things move around a bit more. But I think the, um, uh, the thing that is just a lot of very complicated structure in human brains. I mean, if one thinks that, you know, and, and it, brains are very variable. It's just like fingerprints vary. Brains vary a lot more than fingerprints. They're sort of all folded up. They're kind of in, in layers and they're folded up. And the, the patterns of folding are very specific to individual people. So in any case, there's a lot that there is to figure out about sort of the structure of the brain, how things are organized in the brain, uh, how this or that piece of the brain tends to react to this or that thing. Um, there are all sorts of situations in which uh, people have uh, different kinds of problems in different parts of the brain? What effect does that have? To what extent can, if one part of the brain is not being used for what you expect, like because somebody is visually impaired and so they're not using their visual cortex because their eyes are not sending signals to it, you know, what does that part of the brain end up getting used for? All those kinds of things. There are a lot of, a lot of complicated things to figure out there.
But the other sort of big sort of story of neuroscience is about kind of how do brains really manage to think? And back in the 1940s, it was already proposed that brains kind of think a bit like machines process information. And there was this analogy made between sort of idealized models of computers that hadn't, there weren't yet real electronic computers, but there were idealized ones. And, and they were sort of, it was like, well, maybe that's kind of like how idealized brains work. And it's kind of like electrical wires and they're all connected and they have different sort of logical operations that they do as these wires meet and cross and so on. And there was a sort of whole theory of these things developed. And one of the big questions was in that theory, where is the memory? A big feature of our, us is we remember stuff. How do we remember stuff? Well, the thing that was believed and is still believed is that memory is associated with the synapses, the connections between the axons and dendrites that are the sort of receiving and sending parts of the um, uh, of, of of nerve cells, and so it's become clearer, sort of in more detail, how that works with particular sort of pores and channels in these uh, synapses um, that kind of can be filled in or not filled in and so on, depending on that sort of how our memories are stored. But this general idea of memories are somehow stored in synapses and somehow our experiences, we learn from our experiences and the experiences determine those memories. The memories then determine sort of how we do things. We remember skills and things like this. And it sort of gradually emerged that it works kind of like computers work in the sense that we are storing code for how to do things and we're storing things that we remember, facts, scenes, images, whatever that we remember. We're somehow storing these things. How is, really that, how is that really organized? How does that really work? Well, one doesn't know for sure. The, the thing that happened back in the um, early 1980s was... People, well, people had had this idea back in the 1940s of neural networks, this kind of electrical machine-like network in the brain, and some ideas about how memories will be formed of, of sort of when you've seen a thing multiple times, it sort of strengthens the, the memory, strengthens the connection between the appropriate nerve cells, and so on, and that's kind of how you remember things. But for various reasons, kind of the mathematics didn't work out terribly well, and people got kind of convinced that those kinds of neural nets couldn't do anything interesting. So they kind of pulled back from that. Then at the beginning of the 1980s, there was sort of a rebirth in these things as computer experiments became more realistic and so on. And people started saying, oh, well, actually, we can get these artificial neural nets to do somewhat interesting things. And so there was this kind of renaissance of interest in that. And that fed into neuroscience because it was like, well, we can also do computer simulations in neuroscience and make some conclusions about how actual brains work. Meanwhile, we can use these artificial neural networks to do things technologically. It didn't pan out that well technologically. There were a few things that got done with neural nets. For example, when you, optical character recognition, when you're recognizing this is A, B, C, D, you know, which, which letter is it? First, it was just digits. Which of these 10 digits did somebody hand write on a check that they wrote or something like this? That was something that was successfully done with neural nets in the 1980s, and it sort of became the standard technology for doing those kinds of things. But more elaborate tasks like saying, what's this a picture of, of the, of the five or 10,000 things that we have names for in English, the kind of picturable nouns of English, what's this a picture of? You couldn't do that with artificial neural nets. Nobody had figured out how to do that back in the 1980s and 1990s and so on. But a small set of people kind of continued to work on the idea of having these sort of big artificial neural nets 
and training them to do complicated tasks a bit like humans. And finally, around 2011, there was kind of a breakthrough in that almost accidental breakthrough that if you just do enough training, millions and millions of rounds of training and so on, you can get these neural nets, these artificial neural nets that are just represented in a computer to actually learn like 10,000 different kinds of object that you could show to, to the neural net and do a pretty good job identifying this is a dog, this is a cat and so on. So that happened and that led to the whole kind of uh, flowering of machine learning and neural networks that took place over more or less the last 10 years. Um, it's kind of a little bit slowing down now, but a lot of different things like recognizing objects, like being able to go from sounds to, uh, to written text, you know, speech to text, being able to do language translation, uh, all these various kinds of things, being able to take an image and sort of fill in, just fill in what you think should be there, even though there's a hole. That's something that our brains do, like you know, in, in our eyes, our optic nerve kind of has, again, in a piece of somewhat questionable design, our optic nerve kind of makes a blind spot on the kind of nose side of each eye. So if you, if you kind of close one eye and um, you're looking at like a, a thing of graph paper, you put a big black blob on the graph paper, there's a place where if you're the right distance away and you kind of focus on the thing, that black blob will just disappear because that black blob is right at the place where you have a blind spot in your eye. It's where the optic nerve connects to the, to the retina of your eye. And um, so you, you don't see the, the big black blob. Instead, what you see is just a continuation of the graph paper. It's like, how did that happen? Well, the answer is because brains, just our brains, sort of recognize patterns of what's going on, and they just try and fill in more of the same. And neural nets are also pretty good at doing that. So probably in much the same ways that our brains do it. But in any case, so this sort of revolution of artificial neural nets took place over the last 10 years or so. And uh, the, the underlying sort of what is easy to do in a computer for a neural net is not the same as what it's easy to do in brains. Um, it's, it's, there are different kinds of operations to do with the way that, particularly the way that learning happens and uh, this whole uh, kind of mechanism of backpropagation and, and all these kinds of things. It seems very different from the way we thought brains worked. What's become clear in recent years is that not too surprisingly, now that we've really understood how things work in artificial neural nets, a lot of the sort of core ideas can actually be sort of moved back into traditional neuroscience, even though actual nerve cells don't quite work the way that artificial neural nets work. But it seems like the overall architecture is surprisingly similar. But so then the question is, okay, so what is the sort of, the question that I was asked here was about sort of breakthroughs in neuroscience. Neuroscience is a quite popular field. There are a lot of people who work on it. It's a field where there are a lot of detailed things to do. And there are a lot of specific experiments to do on different kinds of animals and different kinds of uh, parts of the brain and different sort of kinds of stimuli and so on. There's just a lot to do, a lot to figure out. Question might be, what's the big picture of what one wants to know? And is one, for example, trying to use what one learns from the brain to make better artificial intelligence? No, it's not obvious that's the right way to get to better artificial intelligence. It's like one could think, as people did 150 years ago, that the right way to learn how to do flight is to study birds. But in fact, aeroplanes do not flap their wings. They don't have feathers. They work in a different way. 
than birds work. What is good for engineering, good for our sort of engineering with aluminum and, and jet engines and things like that is all different from what's good for a bird that is just sort of trying to transport itself and has certain ratios of you know, uh, bone and strength to this, that, and the other. It's, um, and has a different kind of control system that airplanes have had in the past, although those things are converging a bit more now. Um, but uh, so you know, this question of how do you make sort of the intelligent thing, it's not clear that knowing more about brains helps you that much with that. Although what I think is true is that there is sort of the abstract idea of intelligence having nothing to do with human intelligence is not perhaps as useful as you might think. A lot of the things we want a machine that we interact with to do are things that are very human-like, very human-oriented, and that's something for which more knowledge of the brain might be more useful. But I think if one asks sort of what is the big question of neuroscience, I'm not sure I entirely know the answer to that. I think one might hope that there's some sort of grand theory that tells one this is how brains work. But I think we know kind of how the pieces of brains work. We know how we can learn from examples. We know how a bunch of kinds of processing of things work. Uh, when we'll be able to get something which has sort of the scale of a human brain, one, if one looks at sort of simulations of how brains work. So, so another question is, can we simulate a whole human brain? With 100 billion neurons, can we just put that on a computer and have a big computer and have it operate just like a human brain? Not yet. Where the level of being able to do tiny little sort of uh, tiny little regions of the human brain, um, but it's uh, it's it's also a question of at what level do you want to simulate it? Because ultimately, brains have all kinds of details about you know how much glucose got to that cell, how much energy could it really expend? Does it you know is this particular dendrite? Does it have a little kink at the end of it? Does it have a little spine that sticks out in this place or that place? The thing that isn't obvious is which of those things actually matter as far as the sort of information processing thinking parts of brains is concerned. It's just like if you have a computer and you know there's a little scratch on the outside of this CPU chip or something, does it matter? Does it not matter? Or if there's a little, you know, in, the, in a little piece of the channel in the silicon um, of the microprocessor chip, oh, there's a little extra wave in this place. Does it matter? Does it not matter? So what we've learned, the big thing about digital computers is that in a digital computer, it's either there's a, a one or a zero. It could be the case that there's a 0 0.01, 0 0.02, 0 0.03. There's little sort of gray gradations of, um, uh, of amounts of, let's say, memory. Uh, something where instead of saying, I remember the answer is 0, 010, 0, it would be, well, it's it's sort of roughly 0 0.2, 0 0.8, 0 0.3 or something. Well, it's not precisely digitally 010. It's something more sort of vague and, uh, and sort of smoothly varying between 0 and 1, for example. So one of the things that, that became clear from neurons is, well, in digital computers, the big thing is we force all the data to be 0 or 1. And if it's just... if if something happens electrically that causes something to be 0 0.02 or something, it'll just be kicked down to zero. It's just like, no, it can't be 0 0.02, it's gotta be just zero. Unless it's one, it's zero, so to speak. And so 
that's kind of the approach of digital electronics. And that means that little amounts of noise, little amounts of sort of perturbations kicking around of, of these values, that's all ignored because it's all squashed to being either zero or one. And one of the things that got learnt, actually, it was guessed back in the 1940s, um, is that brains actually have a similar kind of trick. When you have nerve cells, when you have a certain amount of input, certain amount of input, nothing much happens, it's kind of like a zero, and then suddenly above some other input, boom, it becomes one. So brains kind of have this digital trick, digital idea built into them, and that kind of suggests that certain kinds of noise, certain kinds of imperfections might not be important to brains, and that means that this question of at what level do you need to model the brain to reproduce kind of its information processing capabilities, we don't entirely know the answer to that yet. Some people think it may matter what you know the microtubules on the surface of, of nerve cells are doing. Other people think that's totally irrelevant and it's only the very large scale structure of nerve cells that matters and so on. So it's not completely clear. So it's not completely clear sort of how big a computer we would need to simulate a brain at what level of, of uh, correctness, so to speak. But there will come a time when we can do a pretty decent job of simulating a brain at a decent level of precision, so to speak. And at what point will we then be able to kind of train the brain, the simulated brain, like we train our own brains? Uh, probably it'll happen. Um, the only issue is the details of what we learn have to do with our interaction with the world. So for example, when we trained our first image identifier, a thing that recognizes dogs and cats and elephants and uh, teacups and all these kinds of things, we showed it, oh, how many was it? I think maybe 30 million images. And we realized that that number of images is pretty comparable to the number of images a young kid sees in the first few years of their life. And that's kind of you know, what we had to train our neural net with was comparable to what a human would see as they sort of wander around the world in the first few years of life. And an important feature of what humans seem to do is like you poke at something and you see what happens. And that's kind of how you learn how the world works in some sense. And that to do that kind of poking and seeing what happens about the world at a sort of human level, you almost have to be sort of a humanoid robot that's about the size of humans and has fingers and sort of has an experience of the world that's based on poking at things with fingers and all those kinds of things. And so it's not clear how much of that stuff has to be there for it to be possible for even a brain emulating sort of thing to learn the same way that our brains learn. And you know, if the thing's just sitting as a box on your desk and has a different experience of the world, it's gonna learn somewhat different things. But so that's sort of the question of, Will we be able to sort of emulate how brains work? The answer is, I think, pretty definitely yes. Will we then have a global theory of neuroscience, a theory of how brains work? That's not so clear. Because it could be, as happens a lot with neural networks right now, is you can train the neural network to do this or that thing. But if you say, how does it work? How does it tell a cat from a dog? And, and, and you know, what is the thing that makes it decide that's a cat, that's a dog? That's a hard thing to know. And you can do some kinds of measurements inside neural nets to say, this is the region that's activated to make it decide it's going to be cat-like rather than dog-like and so on. But in general, it's a hard thing to describe. And, and a lot of it just ends up being, well, there's a million neurons in here and they have this very detailed pattern of behavior. And at the end of the day, it's kind of going to conclude cat or dog. 
So there may not be a kind of larger scale story where you just say, well, okay, the reason the way it tells cats from dogs is by how pointy the ears are and whether the whiskers work in this way or that way. There may not be kind of a, a large scale narrative story you can tell, and it may not be possible to have in neuroscience a sort of large scale story you can tell about kind of how that how the brain processes the information to come up with a conclusion. You can, you can look at some pieces of how that works and maybe some overall workflow of what's happening, but it's not obvious that there'll be sort of a step-by-step, -step, this is how it works, narrative that you can tell. This is something that's come out of, of science that I've done about this phenomenon of computational irreducibility, that even when you know the rules by which a system operates, it may not be that you can tell a sort of big story about what the system is doing. It may just be you have to say, well, this nerve cell causes this nerve cell causes this nerve cell. And there may be no sort of human understandable bigger story to tell. And of course, there are things one can ask, you know, in, when it comes to human language, there are lots of kinds of questions about sort of how does that work? How do we understand human language? When we construct a sentence, you know, it's got subject, verb, object in English, and there's this whole kind of tree of different subclauses in a sentence. How do we in our brains pick apart those subclauses and kind of understand the sentence? You know, we do a good job of understanding uh, natural language in Wolfram Alpha, for example, when people are typing all kinds of things in and we're trying to understand what does that mean, we're trying to convert that into our internal computational language. Now, in brains, it's a little bit unclear what you're converting the data into, so to speak. You hear these words, you can tell, oh, you know, this, this is a subclause of that and so on, but what is the, what's the target? We don't really understand that. And brains, presumably, uh, one question is, can we describe that target? Is there a reasonable human way to describe that target? Or is it something where the only thing we can say is, well, we gradually learn over the course of our lives this very complicated pattern that is the thing that where we have certain rules that are operating on our neurons that in the end lead us to do the things we do based on the things, based on the language we hear, but there isn't really a sort of bigger story to tell in how that language is interpreted, just as there isn't really a bigger story to tell when we look at one of these computer simulations and we're seeing all these different uh, individual rules behaving in certain ways, and then there's some result from that. So there's sort of a, a question of what, what might the answer look like? If we solve that problem, what would the solution be like? Would the solution be, and I think this is probably the answer, sort of a higher level theory for what's happening in the brain that is beyond this individual neuron does that and below just, oh, and you understand what the English sentence means. It's something intermediate that's sort of telling you the mechanism for that. And it's not really clear quite what that will look like. I mean, to me, that's much more like a kind of question of, of uh, well, okay, so, so one of the things I've spent well, much of my life doing is trying to find sort of computational ways to describe how things in the world work, to have a sort of computational language that can describe the geometry of, of how things are placed or the sounds that are produced or, or facts about chemistry or molecules or whatever else. And so one of the questions would be, is there a way of sort of turning what is happening in a brain into something which can be described in computational language? Interesting question. I don't really know the answer. People have tried to use mathematics to describe what happens in the brain. That's not been very successful. Mathematics, as it's currently configured, saying 
you know, we have these mathematical equations and things. There aren't really good equations for the brain. It's just not a good way to describe the brain. When we deal with sort of specific programs for individual neurons, we can do pretty well for that. We can sort of aggregate that up to, okay, what are 10 million neurons going to do? But we tend to be at the level of these are the detailed things the 10 million neurons are doing, not at the level of tell me the sort of larger scale computational description of what's happening. So I think that's, uh, as I think about it, that's probably, if you were to ask what is, what would the future of neuroscience look like in a perfect world, it's, well, we'd have a theory of neuroscience. What's the theory going to be stated in terms of in what we have looked to sometimes in the, in the past in the exact sciences is some sort of mathematical theory, an equation of the brain. I don't think we're going to get that. Will we get a computational language for the brain? We might. We might. That's a much more reasonable thing to think about. And it's something where it may be the case that there isn't really a good computational language because we can describe the low-level neuron operations, but then we just say, oh, and put 10 million of them together, and this is the details of what happens, and we don't get to sort of say more uh, in, in, in more kind of human understandable way a sort of higher-level description of what's happening. But I think that's probably where one might be going with that. And it's an interesting question what that sort of intermediate computational language for the brain might look like. And I actually have seen almost no work on that at all. So it's, a, it's an interesting question, and I haven't really formulated it quite like that before, but that would be a, uh, probably the thing to kind of be thinking about um, in terms of a sort of a target for neuroscience. It's just like when we understand natural language in Wolfram Alpha, as I say, it's not just a, let's abstractly understand what somebody means when they say, What's the population of Boston divided by United States? What, what, you know, it's not a question of sort of abstractly light bulb goes off, we understood. It's a question of converting that into, uh, you know, entity, United States, population, you know, the, the function divide applied to that and another entity of this. It's converting that into this computational language, which has a precisely defined meaning that can be computed on by a computer, so to speak, with our Wolfram language technology stack. Um, that's what it means to understand natural language. And so similarly, what it would mean to sort of understand how brains work is to say, let's convert this. Yes, there's low level operations that are kind of the machine code of how the brain is working. There are all these neurons firing and all these kinds of things. And there's an overall story, which is, and then we see a cat or something. But the question is, is there a sort of computational language version of a higher level story about, oh, then there's this kind of filter that's applied and, and this thing that happens and, and there's sort of a higher level story about what's happening. And uh, that's something which implicitly some of the architectures for neural nets that exist now uh, have sort of aspects like attention layers and things of, of let's pay attention to a particular part of the image. Let's these convolutional layers where you're, you're like, do the things which are very similar to the early processing in our visual cortex of things like identifying stripes and spots and all these kinds of things. Um, those, we can sort of understand what they're doing. The intermediate levels of processing, we don't understand so well. It's probably a reasonable formulation to say, is there a sort of computational language that we can give that describes those kind of intermediate layers? All right, that was a very long answer to that um, uh, let's see, there's a little bit more on brains. So let me, let me ask, let me talk a little bit about brains. There's a question from Robert here about smart drugs, custom-made neuropeptides that um, 
increase, I don't know what this is, um, I probably should know, some, some brain function kind of measure. I'm always, brains are complicated. I, you know, if you say, let's just throw in this thing and uh, uh, like, you know, typical, whether it's eating caffeine or chocolate or, or drinking alcohol or whether it's taking some other kind of drug, these are very uh, sort of coarse hammers that you hit brains with. And what effect that has is often very hard to know. And, you know, some of these things, we kind of know it increases the level of this neurotransmitter, this particular substance associated with the transmission of information from one neuron to the next. Um, and there's a few neurotransmitters that have certain overall levels in the brain. And when their levels vary, different things happen and so on. I think there are sort of hopes and there have been forever and ever that you can just sort of take this pill and you'll be smarter as a result. Uh, I, I find that a little bit hard to, to get into. Um, I think that, you know, one's experience is, oh, well, if one's tired, there's certain kinds of things that one doesn't figure out. But I think that's more a question of one's degree of attent attentiveness and tenacity and, you know, how long can one really stick with it? Or is one like, I just want to go to sleep. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think that's more than whether the intrinsic processing is, is happening. Now, I, I do know that that some things slow down when one gets tired, one's reactions slow down, things like this. So I don't really know all of those dynamics. And I suppose one could imagine uh, there's some way to just sort of speed things up. Um, I, I suspect, you know, and some drugs are said to do that. Um, I think, uh, um, well, my own personal, uh, uh, I would never touch any of those things myself. But that's that may be more of a personal statement about um, I just think it's a very complicated setup and I don't um, these hammers seem dangerous to to deploy, so to speak. But uh, what would it mean to sort of be smarter? You know, is there a a notion of that? Uh, you know, for example, for me, as you know, when one when I think about problems and it's like, can I solve this problem? Can I figure this out? There's a lot of dimensions to that. There's a lot of, do I remember related things? Can I recognize that the thing I've been confronted with is related to something I was confronted with before? When I think through things, it might take me hours to figure something out. And it's like, well, couldn't I be smarter and just get to the end without going through all those intermediate steps? Not obvious. Given what one knows, it's not obvious sometimes that you can avoid those steps. It could be the case that Yes, if you already knew the answer, great, you can get to the answer at the end. That's not really a question of sort of being smarter. Well, maybe it is. It's just a question of knowing more. And it's certainly, you know, my personal experience has been the more you know, the easier it is to figure stuff out um, because there's more likelihood that some question that you're confronted with is like, well, I've seen something a little bit like that before. Let me grab this piece of knowledge from here or this methodology from here and let me apply it to the thing that I'm now thinking about. I mean, that seems very effective. Um, I kind of am, am deeply dubious about the kind of, uh, you know, take the smart pill and then you'll be able to do things better. Because, for example, one of the things that could happen is, you know, one of the bad things that could happen is like, well, you know, one of the things one needs to do is to figure out what's connected to what. Well, let's say you, you know, take the pill that makes it 
easier for your brain to connect this to that. Well, one of the things that can happen is like, oh my gosh, your brain is just completely you know, inundated with this is connected, this is connected, this is connected. You know, that uh, thing that's there, it reminds me of a, an oyster. And that other thing that's there reminds me of a, uh, a charging rhinoceros. And that other thing reminds me of this. And, you know, pretty soon you'll be, you're, you're, there's this high level of noise of just kind of all these different things that are rushing in. And so it's a tricky thing. You need just enough kind of uh, ability to connect things, but not so much that there's just this huge noise level of all these connections that almost certainly don't make sense. And yet not so little that you just say, oh, I've never seen anything like that before kind of thing. So I think it's a, you know, these are subtle things and I'm, I'm skeptical about any kind of uh, big hammer being able to, to have much good effect there. Um, the question from David about Crick Mitchison theory of REM sleep. Well, I, I knew Francis Crick slightly and I knew Graham Mitchison somewhat too. Um, however, I'm not sure that I'm well acquainted with their theory of REM sleep. I think that what that has to do with is the idea that uh, during rapid eye motion sleep, which is one of the phases of sleep that happens every, let's see, I should know because I've seen that sleep trace for myself a zillion times. It happens a few times a night. You go through these periods of REM sleep. I, maybe if you're younger, it happens more often. And um, these are the, the periods when it might be the case that you are kind of consolidating memories and there might be things you learnt during the day and you're kind of, you're kind of working through those things you learnt. And I think it is probably the case that a lot of what we remember is not the thing that originally happened, but our memory of the thing that originally happened. Our sort of rehearsal of the, you know, our, we remember remembering what happened, so to speak. And I, it could very well be the case that, that during that phase of sleep, we are remembering, we're sort of doing the first level of remembering, the second level of remembering, so to speak, and that that helps develop sort of longer term memories. But I, I don't, uh, um, I'm, I'm not, um, uh, actually, I have heard about this in more detail. I probably could um, uh, you see this is a case where my memory is not perfect. I remember different things that are sort of related to this and conversations I had and so on, but I'm not sure that I can completely put them together quickly to, to give a summary of what, what's going on there. But it's sort of an idea that as you form long-term memories, because you know we have a, a kind of short buffer memory that lasts a few minutes, where, for example, if somebody says, what were the last few words I said, you can probably trot those out but you won't remember those words permanently, typically, but there's something that happens over the course of, of hours to day or, or so that is part of our the, the creation of our long-term memory. And it's known how that happens in terms of protein synthesis and so on in, in synapses. And there's a fair amount that's known about how that actually works now. And there are things that can interrupt that long-term memory formation and so on. But that, that's kind of what happens. And, and the role of sleep in sort of, making memories uh, happen is, uh, is, is something still, still being investigated, so to speak. All right, let's see. Um, oh boy. All right, we got a question here uh, about something I don't know much about from Frost. Can I comment on the history of plant breeding and computation or agriculturist technology? It seems that old plant breeders think that new molecular breeding techniques are a waste of time and money. Modern breeders use genomic selection with SNPs and all kinds of things. 
and this is uh, partly related to genetically modified crops and so on. So, okay, the, the question is, let's say you want to grow a grape that doesn't have seeds. Let's say you want to grow a bigger, juicier strawberry. Let's say you want to grow a corn plant that has a higher yield, that produces more corn per amount of, per number of plants or something. How do you make that happen? Well, what people realized now, uh, well, long time ago, but, but uh, more intensely, maybe a couple of hundred, 150 years ago or so, was that you could really do uh, plant breeding. That is, you could say, okay, I've got, I, I make these, um, these strawberry plants, and I'm going to have a whole row of strawberry plants, and the strawberry plant that makes the biggest, juiciest strawberry out of this collection I'm going to take that one and I'm going to use that to produce the next generation of strawberry plants. And I'm going to throw out all those loser strawberry plants that made little tiny strawberries. And so I'm going to keep going and I keep iterating through many generations, tens of generations or more, iterating and saying, okay, at every generation, let me pick the biggest, juiciest strawberries. And that's kind of the idea of artificial selection of kind of of breeding things to achieve a particular purpose. And people have done that with animals for a long time. And in a sense, for example, Charles Darwin's idea of natural selection from 1859 or so was this idea that this notion of picking out the biggest, juiciest strawberry or something can happen not artificially by us breeding it and saying, we're gonna pick the plant with the biggest, juiciest strawberry, but naturally through the fact that the plant with let's say the biggest juiciest strawberry is the one that is going to naturally have the most progeny because I'm just making it up for that case because it's the one that more animals eat and so the seeds get spread more, more widely or something. Or in general with natural selection, it's like there are different traits that occur. You know, This bird has a beak that allows it to crack certain kinds of nuts that occur in the environment where it lives and as the beak gets longer and pointier, it can crack the nuts better. And so that bird will naturally end up surviving better and having more, more uh, bird children, so to speak. And um, so the idea of artificial selection is to do that sort of by hand, to say, rather than letting nature pick what's the most successful organism, what's the one that can find the most food, produce the most uh, you know, um, children, so to speak, um, we'll do that by hand. We'll decide this is the pigeon we think looks nicest. This is the dog we think has the nicest, uh, um, uh, you know, nicest floppy ears or whatever. And so we'll, uh, whatever, is this is the plant that gets the smallest or largest or whatever. We will artificially select these things out. That's the traditional idea of plant breeding. And that's the thing that led maybe 100 years ago now to... Um, uh, dramatically improved agricultural yields. People had thought 150 years ago, and so people were saying, gosh, you know, at that time, the population of the world might have been half a billion, a billion people. People were saying, there's no way we can support 2 billion people. You know, we're just going to run out of food because if we plant crops across all the fields, across the whole earth, there just won't be, we won't have enough yield of actual sort of food from these crops to be able to feed, feed a larger population. Well, the reason, one of the principal reasons that didn't come to pass, that we didn't run out of food, 
is because the yield of crops got dramatically much better through crop breeding, basically. And through, uh, I don't know all the history, I think there was a crop called alfalfa, which was one of the, one of the sort of bread crops that was um, uh, very successful. But in any case, I don't know that history well, so, so somebody has to look that up to, to be sure. Um, I think that um, the, uh, uh, but the, the main point was that the original, what crops naturally produced per acre in terms of food was able to be dramatically improved by crop breeding. And there were oh, various parts of the world where people didn't believe in crop breeding for various ideological reasons and terrible things happened and all sorts of funny things. But basically that was a, um, uh, that was kind of a, a notion of, of um, how, so that, that led to, to sort of much more efficient crops. Now, the thing that's happened more recently is explicit genetic engineering. You take the genome of such and such a plant and you just say, let's go in in a lab and just change that part of the genome. Let's change that piece of the genome to be more resistant to various kinds of pests or something, or let's change that piece of the genome to produce uh, this or that um, kind of, uh, um, this or that effect. And uh, so I've kind of, my sort of joke thing about genetically modified crops is uh, I want to see a time when we understand enough about genetics that we're able to like print a barcode on a tomato or something by virtue, by, by when I say print, grow a barcode on a tomato, that the genome of the tomato will actually uh, be so carefully organized that as the tomato develops, somewhere the pigmentation of the tomato will correspond to a barcode. And so you just take it to the checkout and, and somebody can, um, uh, I, I, you know, I think the technology of recognizing a tomato is probably coming much sooner, and it's here now probably, than the technology of being able to genomically um, put, uh, a grow a tomato with a barcode on it. So that's kind of a joke thing. Actually back in, oh, I, I had a, let's say an acquaintance, who was well-known scientist who, who had um, uh, the theory back in the 1960s, he used to say, you know, all the stuff with computers, it's all irrelevant. What's really going to happen is that biology, genetic engineering is going to be the thing that makes us able to build things that do tasks we want. And I think that led, that kind of idea led to some, you know, science fiction movies, where people had sort of, uh, where there was sort of a portrayal of genetics hackers, where the genetics hacker, instead of having, if it was an electronics hacker, they might've set up all kinds of electronic circuits that would you know, open their door when this or that person showed up or whatever else. But instead in some of these science fiction movies, there are little creatures that are special purpose creatures that you know, open the door when they see such and such a person coming or whatever. Well, that didn't happen. The sort of genetic engineering of like animals like that didn't happen. Um, and I think that's not the level at which we understand for actually much of the same reasons as the things I was talking about in neuroscience. It's sort of not the level that we currently understand biology at, of being able to, we can do something like make it a bigger strawberry, but we can't make it do something like print the barcode on the, on the strawberry or the tomato or whatever else it is. That's a level of detail we, we don't really understand and the way that sort of the processing of information works in biological growth and so on. But in any case, the, the sort of a big debate about genetically modified crops 
and oh, these are not naturally produced crops, they're not. Um, they're, they're sort of produced very much in a lab. I think that um, this whole question of uh, can bad things happen when you produce stuff in labs, you know, it's a big, big issue for our uh, unfriendly virus that, you know, uh, I think is, is um, uh, you know, I think the evidence tends to suggest that it's sort of something that got produced in a lab um, and uh, uh, as a piece of research um, about, well, what happens if we make viruses like this? Um, and unfortunately, it sort of got out and turns out it's pretty good at infecting humans and things. And so one might say, you know, well, that's a potential problem because, you know, we can say, let's modify a plant and say, well, let's modify it and make this change. And uh, what happens if you do this and so on? And that could lead to bad consequences. And yes, it is very hard to know what the precise consequences of some particular change are. Um, I think that the things that tend to happen in crops tend to be a bit more benign than uh, the things that you can do with modifying viruses. But it's still a, um, uh, you know, it's something I think there's some reason to be concerned about, although I would say that one's concern can get overblown. Um, I think that uh, it's one of these things where it's a bit like, I don't know, testing of anything. Uh, it's like when you write a piece of software, it's like, well, I think I wrote the software and I did it perfectly and it has no bugs in it. Well, you can't know that. You have to test it. And, you know, when you do enough testing, you'll typically find, you know, there's a good chance you'll find all the bugs. Maybe there'll be one that creeps through. Maybe in some special situation, some sort of bug will jump out and, and, and bite you, so to speak. And so it might be with, with something like uh, genetically uh, modified crops. Um, but it's, uh, you know, there are, there are risks in everything. And there are also benefits to these things. And, you know, there are situations in which you can get dramatically more efficient, more robust kinds of uh, uh, things that make food, and food is something we we need everywhere around the world. Um, and uh, uh, it's not something where it's probably the right calculation to say, no, 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 just because it doesn't have the naturalness of having been kind of bred by artificial selection, which is, again, not natural because it's your picking which is the bestest, bestest fittest strawberry or whatever it is, um, not nature itself picking that. And, of course, nature itself picking it is, again, a very circular kind of thing because something like, well, you know, there's a, there's a particular kind of organism that is fitter because now there's a road going through that part of, of, uh, of the countryside or whatever, or that organism is fitter because uh, it is something which humans think looks cute, so they keep it as pets, and so there are more of it in the world, things like this. I mean, it's, it's a complicated, uh, you know, the ecosystem of these kinds of things is pretty complicated, and I think it's not... Um, uh, it's not something where there's a, a definitive, oh, no, you shouldn't do that, or, oh, yes, that's a great idea. It's something where, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a complicated judgment issue. But I think, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know as much about hybrids and, and um, uh, the, the details of how crops are, are bred and so on to comment much more on that. Let's see. Well, maybe I can do one or two more questions here. Um, as a question, I don't know how to take this. Um, 
There's a question here from Vuk asking about, will the future bring surveillance, uh, all-knowing government, deep, and, and can deep fakes and other things be used to sort of fake identity in physical and digital worlds to sort of get rid of people knowing sort of who you are? Boy, that's complicated. I mean, I think that this question of how do you know who, if you're dealing with a computer and you're sort of on the internet, how do you know who that is who's interacting with the computer? For example, do you even know if it's a person? You know, on the internet, nobody knows if you're a bot, nobody knows if you're a, a cat randomly typing on the computer keys. How do you tell that it's a person who is interacting with that website? And there are all these sort of tests of, you know, click this button. You know, the button sort of moves around and it's something dynamically generated on a web page. And it's like, if you can click it, if you can see where it is, well, then that proves you're a human. Well, it doesn't really, because you could have a program. And it's a little tricky to do that because of the way web browsers work and so on. But you can, you can in principle, make something which recognizes where that box is and clicks the button. Or then there are captures where it says, you know, find the traffic lights in this picture. Um, or, or it just says, in a simpler case, it's like, here are some letters. You know, we've made these things a bunch using image processing in our, in our language. Here are these letters. Can you, what, you know, type in what these letters say? And the letters have been really distorted and, and pulled out and made so that they're very hard to recognize. But, you know, if we can do it, uh, so can a bunch of our machine learning systems. And that's kind of an arms race of, you know, can, can the... Are there things that humans can do? Because it's no good having a capture that says, let's confirm you're a human. And then the human is like, well, I just can't do this. So, uh, you know, that, that's a complicated sort of thing where it's to be just doable by the humans, but not doable by the current generation of machine learning. And that's a very thin, thin, uh, maybe non-existent line. And then similarly, there are these things like find the traffic lights in this picture. I'm, I'm actually surprised that our current machine learning tools can't do those. I haven't tried it recently. My guess is they probably can do them. My guess is that the trickiness is sort of injecting all of that into the web browser and all those kinds of things. But that's just a detailed engineering thing. But this question of, you know, on the internet, can you even tell you're a human? That's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, it's, you know, can you tell what's at the other end of that computer, so to speak? Well, there are a lot of things people do for, for example, financial services. You know, you're, 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 uh, you know, you're setting up some bank account or something, and it's like there are regulations that say you've got to really verify there's a person. It's the person you think it is, and so there's a there are various kinds of ways of doing that, and there are various tests, and you know, some of those tests say things like, uh, look at the camera. Now turn to the left, now turn to the right. And you'd have to have this sort of three-dimensional thing that is kind of like simulating your head, turning to the left, turning to the right, and so on. And that's just something that is a bit out of reach for our current uh, automated systems at the present time. And it's kind of like we can recognize that face. Oh, yes, you know, if you, you know, hold up your passport or your driving license or whatever it is. Um, and the system, the automated system, can see the picture on your on your driving license, and then it says, 
you know, and then it can recognize, is this person who is looking at the camera the same as the person in, on the driving license? And then, okay, turn your head. Well, that's an, a hard thing to achieve to make a realistic sort of head turning thing, at least in the current state of machine learning and so on, although it's not that far away, I suspect. And there's a question then of, and, and will you be able to see a signature if in fact that's a fake, if the kind of head turning thing is just, well, I got a picture of the person from the web and I kind of synthesized what the 3D view of their head would be. And now I'll just synthesize a turning head. And you know, can you tell whether that's a fake or whether that's a genuine, there's a real object there and it's somebody turning their head. Um, that's something that is, uh, um, is, is difficult um, um, to, uh, uh, um, uh, to deal with, sorry, one second. Um, the, uh, 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 reminds me of another kind of thing, which is, you know, part of the, how do you tell who the person is, is, you know, in two-factor authentication, that's very common. It's like, you, you know, you know, your password, you remember your password. Oh, do you really have that phone that, uh, you uh, you said you had this particular number. Can you really get this particular text message and type it in? And there's sort of more elaborate versions of that for financial kinds of things, like the, the system will transfer a few cents to some bank account of yours. Can you log in and see exactly how much it transferred? Those kinds of things. Um, I think that, uh, uh, I mean, this question of uh, can you sort of ver verify uh, that you are who you say you are, and so on. That's a, it's a tricky thing. And at the present time, there are decent technologies for doing that. Um, I think that ultimately one can imagine uh, terribly intrusive technologies for doing it. I mean, in, in the present time, there's, uh, well, there's a lot of face recognition or more like head shape recognition that's becoming common, like on, on I think, well, certainly iPhones, I don't know, uh, other cases, there's, you know, what's, what's happening is there's some grid of infrared light that's projected by the phone. And depending on sort of where those lines fall, that gives you kind of the overall three-dimensional shape of a head. And then that's a way that the phone can tell is, is that the, is that the head that's my owner, so to speak, or not? Um, and that's a, uh, and then it can sort of open up and, and there've been other versions of that with, uh, um, that don't work quite as well with fingerprints. And so one that's, that's considered to be pretty good is retina scans. The, uh, the particular pattern of blood vessels on the back of our eyes, uh, when our eyes develop, um, they are gradually filled with blood vessels and uh, those blood vessels sort of just uh, kind of grow out and sort of tree out um, to sort of fill the space. And they do so in a kind of random way and everybody has a different pattern of blood vessels on the back of their eyes. And so you can, if you look into somebody's eye and you can see that, um, uh, the, the retina, you can, you can see those blood vessels there. You can also look at uh, features of the iris on the eye. You know, everybody has slightly different patterns of their iris on, on their eyes. That's another thing you can do that kind of recognizes is this person, is it this person or that person? Now, of course, you can say, well, this is the iris scan, but 
uh, you know, does that, oh, and, and you can worry about, you know, is this person like, like um, some of these things with, with fingers, it's like, well, I could just get a, a, a uh, you know, like, like happens in the, you know, some of the, the uh, um, action adventure movies, you know, there'll be some, somebody will get somebody to touch a glass or something, and then um, they'll uh, get their fingerprint from that. And then they'll use that fingerprint for some kind of biometric uh, thing. Of course, the test against that is does when you put your finger on something, uh, is it the right, is your finger the right temperature? And is there a heartbeat there? Can you detect a heartbeat? And uh, so, you know, those things make it more and more difficult to sort of have the fake finger kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I think if the question is, uh, is there going to be a way to tell, oh, that's really this person, not that person, you know, by sufficiently intrusive things, sure, you'll, there's more and more you can tell. For example, one thing you might tell, if you could get some DNA, and it's still too slow and too, too complicated to sequence the DNA, but if it's like, you know, lick this thing, okay, there's a little piece of your DNA that gets in there. Um, now, you know, you go and you sequence the DNA, and you've got those 6 billion base pairs, even much less than that is enough. And you can say, this is this person with this particular collection of genetic program, uh, this particular genome sequence. And you can then see, and you can see this with, with surprising effectiveness in the net of the 100 billion humans who've ever lived. This is kind of their genealogical relationship. You know, there are these ancestors, these children, these grandchildren, etc. And you can kind of fill in that whole net of, of people, and certainly one can imagine a situation in which it's like a little piece of DNA, and it's like, okay, this is where this person fits into the net of all people. I mean, I, I, I'm, I have to say, I must, I, I'm a little bit of the, uh, uh, just leave us all alone and, and let us get on with what we want to get on with. Um, so it makes me a bit nervous to think that one could sort of place people so precisely, and you know, this is this person, this place, and this place. And so on. I mean, sometimes these things don't work out as badly. Well, sometimes they work out very badly. So maybe I, I, I would say that, um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that this question of is it the case that one will, you know, I think the thing that kind of goes against several of these things is right now, most of what gets done by us on the web is us doing it. The bots that we have are much less powerful and, and effective than us ourselves. I mean, sometimes people will, you know, bid in auctions and online auctions. And instead of them as humans, you know, pressing the buttons and so on to bid, they'll have a program, a bot that's going and doing the bidding for them. And the question is, as time goes forward, will more and more of what we do on the web or something be not us directly doing it, but like, oh, just have my bot do that for me. You know, I've got a little army of bots that are staying awake when I'm asleep. The bots are at work, you know, making, uh, uh, figuring out whether to uh, like these posts on some social media thing based on their kind of bot conclusions, based on things that sort of I as the as the human in charge have said. Um, anyway, m much, much to say probably about that. Um, and, but I think it is time to wrap up for uh, today. Um, and uh, I thank you um, all for lots of interesting questions. And I see lots more that um, I'll hope to uh, be able to address another time. So thanks for joining us and uh, bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. 
You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.